You know, um, rain or weather is Aaron's favorite topic. I love weather. We should talk more about that. That and sports ball. Well, if it's the Jays, it's okay, but no, everyone's <laughs> crap. I kind of have to root for Golden State in uh, basketball while I'm here. No, no, no. See, that's some kind of weird-ass sports ball I'm not interested in. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 43 of the More Than Just Code podcast. This is our special WWDC edition. We got uh, two guys down in San Francisco and Aaron and I are stuck up here in Ontario. So Aaron from Whitby, Ontario. Hi. And we're also joined by Greg Heo, who's down in San Francisco for AltConf. Hello. And we're also joined by Jaime Lopez, who's at WWDC. How's it going? And Mark is down in LA. Hey everybody. Alrighty, so we just have a couple of quick follow-up items to go through. Um, just uh, if you've been following along on WWC and you know about the Apple Design Awards, two of our past picks, Crossy Road and Fantastical, both won Apple Design Awards. So, yay! Aaron, yay. Fantastical! You guys know how to pick them. We certainly know how to pick them, that's right. Um, Another follow-up item is has to do with uh, what we were talking about just last week, which was the online privacy issues from um, that was a speech that was given by Tim Cook about how his competition, I guess you could call it, are approaching privacy. And there was an article on TechCrunch that Aaron uh, found. And Aaron, do you want to give us a five-second review of that article? No, not five seconds, but I'll do my best. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is a great article because it came out immediately after our podcast did. So it was uh, vindication for what I felt, even listening to our podcast, uh, was a very strongly worded statement or a series of statements on my part about how Google is, is stealing all of our data and turning us into a dystopia. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe a little strongly worded. Now, now Jaime, you might recall from last week's show, um, stood up in defense of Google and its practices, uh, preferring the functionality that Google provides to the price that he's paying for the privacy that they're stealing from him. Now, this article uh, was really cool in how it uh, positions the price that you pay for the features that you get from free services like everything Google offers. So, um, basically, you know, go ahead and read it. That's all I got to say to you about that. <laughs> um, the big point about it is just that... Um, People are becoming aware of this price. Uh, a big survey was done, and the findings were quite conclusive uh, in terms of uh, being representative of the sample group that um, that companies using people's information or data without their consent is considered a bad thing. Um, the problem right now is that most people don't understand the consequences of what they're getting when they use free products like everything Google does. So. And, and that's just a fact. You know, we don't know what the consequences are. We don't understand what's happening to our data. It's invisible. Um, and that's kind of our problem with it, my problem with it. So uh, go ahead and read the article. Uh, it really lays it out. And um, I think the, the great thing is that it makes it clear that this is not some, you know, this isn't some spook theory that, you know, uh, we're wearing tinfoil hats and stuff like that. This is, you know, this is real. This is happening. It's happening every day. It's been happening for years. And we should be much more aware of it now. Aaron, do they talk about where the kind of awareness? You know, we always thought that, oh, us nerds know about these kind of privacy implications, but all those normal people out there don't. But where do you think that kind of change came from? Did they go into it in this article? Well, the thing is, the survey, you know, asked uh, a group of 1,500 American consumers uh, to agree or disagree with a number of different statements. So, uh, for example, if companies gave me a discount, it is a fair exchange for them to collect information about me without my knowing. And 91% disagree with that. Um, so those are the sorts of things they ask. So it's not to say that that opinion is not necessarily connected with Google's business model. Right? So people may disagree with that statement and yet still happily use Google services. Right? So that's kind of the important thing to understand. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the point of the survey was to determine what kind of support uh, Google's trade-off would have um, if people were more aware of it. I think that would be the next step, you know, is to make people aware of it. I think it's a, a good thing for people to know about. I'm kind of wondering where people will end up drawing the line. Um, 
especially as uh, Aaron made it seem like I was supporting Adolf Hitler. And really, I was more like, you know, <laughs> Joseph Stalin was a complicated man, as I think where, where, my, <laughs> where my statements came down. <laughs> um, but this was really kind of hammered even more in uh, the keynote, right? It's like, this is all private. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the things that the keynote talked about at WWDC, but they mentioned several times, very mm -hmm. noticeably, a little bit awkwardly, but like, this is all private, it's on your device, it's not scary us indexing every little bit of information you've got. Um, there were some clear digs at, at Google in particular, I think. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we can talk about that as well. I kind of wondered as I heard them say that kind of stuff, if, if the talk last week by Tim Cook was in anticipation of what they were going to say during the keynote, or if the, if the keynote was a reaction to that. We can talk about that in the next little bit. This episode is brought to you by UX Launchpad. UX Launchpad teaches fun design classes in Seattle. Whether you're a developer who wants to learn more about design process, or you're already a designer and want to get better, there's a class for you. Check out uxlaunchpad.com to learn more, and use code MTJC to get $50 off. Check the link in the show notes. I would say I could definitely personally recommend uh, these folks. I actually took one of their classes uh, about a month ago, I think. Um, I took the Sketch and Pixate course, which is fantastic as a one-day, really good hands-on training to understand how to use the Sketch um, visual design tool, to which is really well designed for making apps and making all sorts of things that uh, that it's really, you know, formatted to do, right? So it, it's less generic than something like Photoshop, which can do everything this can, but just not as well, right? It's a very focused and niche tool, and the um, instructor showed us a lot of really cool tricks to make it even faster, right? So the sort of things you don't get out of the box with Sketch. Same thing with Pixate, which is another design tool, but it's meant for more of the interaction piece where you're trying to scope out and really spec out and try out the different ways in which your app can have wonderful and delightful interactions. So fantastic class, highly recommend it. This week is the WWDC keynote and a week of fine expoundery from Apple. So uh, there's lots of stuff that happened. There was, we had the keynote on Monday and the State of the Union, uh, and we've been going through copious amounts of videos. I'm sure Jaime's sopping up all the uh, sessions he can go to, as well Greg is down at AltConf in sopping up all the, all the talks he can go to, as well we're all watching the videos, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you guys, uh, Aaron gave me a little bit of what he thought about the uh, conference just before the show, and maybe you can reiterate that, or what do you guys think about um, what we've seen so far? So I, it seems, I, let's talk about the keynote first. Uh, where it's the broad overview of what Apple is bringing. And I don't, I don't really want to talk about too many of the consumer-level announcements. Um, but uh, from an overview perspective, it feels like there's a lot more iteration happening here. Um, we knew coming into this that this would be sort of a Snow Leopard-style release for iOS and OS X, given the Big Bang features that we saw last year. Now they're going to continue with the same thread and just make them better. And, uh, you know, we talked about this last week. Um, so it's come to pass. Apple has never said it. They didn't say it at all in their keynote that we're looking to make things better. Uh, simply, you know, here's, here's some new features. And, um, you know, if you look at them, they don't amount to a whole lot of big bang whizzy new features. Um, you know, take, for example, on iOS, um, the, the iPad multitasking features, which Apple has been working on for, for at least a year, uh, probably a couple years, uh, that almost launched last year, I think. Um, that was, you know, what I think is a big headline feature for iOS 9, and it's, uh, it's been around for a long time. They just, you know, iterated on it. Um, and so there's, there's, I think there's a lot more going on under the hood, just making the systems and the frameworks more reliable. And, um, and less about the the big headlining features. So um, this is a really great um, a great release for developers, I think, because it builds on everything that we learned for the first time last year and enhances it. Um, so like a big example is like the um, um, auto layout and size classes stuff that that they introduced last year knowing that they would have the multitasking and split view stuff coming and of course the larger phones so um developers who adopted those technologies are way ahead now with the multitasking stuff because um, if you adopt that stuff it should 
quote, just work, unquote. So um, things like that are really great. You know, moving metal to OS X, you know, we all saw it coming. Um, I think one of the big things is Swift 2 uh, being open sourced and having a Swift 2 at all. Uh, it looks like uh, it's hard to tell, but it seems like they've uh, addressed pretty much every complaint I had about Swift. Uh, <laughs> uh, better better uh, tooling, better debugging, uh, faster compilation, um, and better integration with the Cocoa frameworks. So, you know, it just seems like uh, you, you're almost running out of excuses now not to be developing in Swift. Um, so that's, that's my overview of it, I think. Cool. And so, Greg, you spend a lot of time with Swift. I know you're heading up the Swift team on, at BrayWinderick.com. Um, what do you think about Swift 2 and, and the new stuff that's come out? What have you seen so far? I think they're really advancing the Swift language and really pushing everyone onto it. It's really just the things that they focused on last year. Like they said, Swift is all about uh, safety in, in programming, for example, and type checking and things like that. And they've really sort of gone the extra mile in that sense in terms of what they did with Swift 1.2, things like adding those uh, nullability kind of things to Objective-C to annotate the methods and things so that they work nicer in Swift. And they've gone even one better. Everyone thought Swift would get all the cool stuff, but they even added the very lightweight generics to Objective-C so that we'll get much better uh, support for collections on the Swift side. For example, the example I was looking at was uh, when you have touches began, touches moved, all of those callbacks. And at first, last year, they would return NS sets of just any objects. Now, as of Swift 1.2, they would give the native Swift sets with any object. But now, with all of the proper annotations, they'll return a set of UI touch objects, and we'll get fully typed collections coming back from Coco as well. So I think I remember us talking about they're sort of not above um, adding features to Objective-C to help Swift out. So this is just one more thing. But I think a really cool feature for Objective-C too, you know, adding something like generics to it and adding angle brackets into the mix aside from just square brackets. So that's probably the cool thing. And then there's lots of other things like protocol extensions, which is crazy. And you can kind of hack together multiple inheritance now because if you extend a protocol and you say, you know, protocols are like anything that implements this protocol has to have this method. But if you add something to a protocol that a million classes in the system already implement, like you can't just say, oh, all of you million classes, you have to implement this method. So you have to provide a default implementation of that method, which means then if you conform to many protocols that have default implementations, then it's almost like you're getting multiple inheritance through the back door. So that's a little bit, I'm not sure how I feel about that, but there we go with protocol extensions. Someone tweeted something like, um, one of the speakers last year called Swift a protocol-based language, and I think today they had the talk on how that's working in Swift, so I haven't seen it yet, but it seems like they really meant it last year, and now protocols are really the sort of, you know, is it inheritance-based, is it classes, how are we doing it, and it seems like they're really going full force on protocols, so that's kind of interesting to see. Funny you should mention that. And I actually came out of that session today, the protocol-oriented programming in Swift. I would highly recommend everyone check that one out. They do, in fact, talk about this, especially the fact that you can now constrain extensions for protocols. So you can say, you know, yes, you know, this extension exists, ex you know, only where this other condition. So, for example, they, they give the notion of doing comparisons on um, numbers, which get, makes sense as a general concept, but then having this other protocol piece that would not apply to strings. Right, because it just didn't make sense to try to compare strings and numbers in the protocol that they came up with. So it, it, that kind of gets around the, the notion that you talked about. Aside from that, the other big highlight for me was the new error handling. So instead of passing those good old double pointers in Objective-C around to fill them in, in Swift that became in-out parameters, which is a little bit nicer, but now they've gone exception-based. They've drank the, drunk the Kool-Aid. And now we have try and catch and throws and exceptions. It looks a little bit cleaner compared to something like Java, I guess. But I think the coolest thing is that the Swift migrator, it will find your code that um, is passing these NS error pointers around. And it will actually migrate that to use this new try, catch, and do kind of syntax. So apparently it works really well. I haven't tried it. But from uh, a couple of people have sent me sort of screenshots of when you run the migrator, it shows that side-by-side -side diff. So I've seen a couple of screenshots, and it looks like it does a really good job. So that's a really big change because 
you know, instead of just, I mean, I think I'm writing a blog post about it, but I think a lot of people just pass in nil for the error parameter or they pass in an error parameter and then they just never check it. And so I think this is, that's the whole idea behind safety of saying, no, you really do have to deal with this because these are errors that are kind of recoverable. It's not like a fatal error. You need to crash the, crash the app and just, you know, head back to Springboard. This is like, no, this is just uh, the network is down, the file can't write the file to disk or something like that. So these are recoverable errors and you really should handle them. Like really, that's the whole point of an NS error is to, um, what's that property called on that? Like human readable resolution. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? NS error has a property called description and it has one for like localized description, but there's one for like suggested resolution, like user-friendly suggested resolution. I forget oh, the property, I know what you mean. But the idea is you yeah. should put that string, like if you're showing a UI alert view to the user, this is the string that you could put into the, t if you're lazy, this is the string you could put into the message of the alert view. So uh, I think they're just really pushing towards that. So actually changing sort of the structure of the language and all of the APIs that deal with NS error are now going to go in this new system. So it's a massive change. And uh, I guess I'm looking forward to safer and error handled code from there. So I guess those are kind of the highlights for Swift for me that I've been looking at. Jaime, have you seen, other than the Swift talk you just uh, mentioned, anything else sort of popping out as uh, significant additions or fix-ups or? Yeah, I mean, uh, by far the biggest one on the block, I think, is watchOS 2, um, which will change, I think, a lot of the complaints that we had about, you know, watchOS 1 and, and apps that were written for it. And I think it was pretty clear that the way that we've been writing watch apps today is just dead and never coming back. There's just like no good reason to have that, you know, anymore. And and really what they're calling watchOS 2 as an aside is I think more properly should have been called watchOS 1 and what we had before was watchOS <laughs> 0.5. watchOS dash code. Yeah, I mean, it, it's clear that it was only done as a, a stopgap resolution because they, they just didn't have time to get what everything that they've shown us today and in the past right. week uh, related to the watch, but it's just wonderful stuff. All these sorts of things you, you would want to have, you know, access to animatable properties. And um, I'm kind of curious if something like MM Wormhole, which we mentioned was being used as a third-party plugin for folks to send information back and forth between the watch, uh, the watch and uh, the iPhone. Now they have something called Watch Connectivity, which they've described, but they haven't had the session yet for me to go to as of this recording. That sounds like it obviates the need to ever use something like that. Like it would just seamlessly handle a lot of that communication you would want. Yeah, it does. Cool. Did you go to the, the session yesterday morning or on um, on watch billing for watch? Yeah, it's just an enormous number of things. I mean, there are probably seven sessions based on the watch this whole week, hmm. and they're real, they're real big, real important sessions. And, and the watch plays a part in it. other sessions that aren't obvious, like what's new in core motion, what's new in core location. So there's quite a bit for people to catch up on. Um, sure. That's that's on the like fancy new features for developers, specifically in apps. I think the other thing that really stuck out in my mind was all of the App Store related pieces like app slicing, on-demand resources, and Bitcode, which is probably the biggest change that they've had in a long time. So app slicing, for those who, who didn't catch, that is you know, nowadays, if you create a universal app, for example, we will have these enormous 2x assets for the iPad that are being shoved right down there on your iPhone 4S, and they're doing nothing other than bloating the, si the installed size of your, your app. App Slicing says, no, 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 we can do better than that. We know everything. We can run Dwarf just as easily as you can. We can slice out these different pieces and say, oh, you're on a Retina class device. You use 2x assets, great, that's what you get. You're an iPhone 6 Plus, you get only the 3x assets, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and also building for your particular architecture, right? So instead of, like when we added the 64-bit processor architecture, it added 50% more size to your app, basically out of the box, because everything that you had was compiled with yet another architecture slice, right? Um, there's also on-demand resources, which is I think going to be more helpful for really content-heavy sorts of things like uh, video games come to mind with the, you know a lot of the content that they have, video, audio, that sort of thing, um, encyclopedia-type apps, you know that sort of thing where you have a very thin shell of an app and you're pulling down resources necessary. Um, you could kind of get around that by having things 
pulled down from your own servers, but this is something that will be hosted on the App Store itself. And you could do something like, okay, well, we've gotten this 10 level game down to a single level that's downloaded to the phone or, or the iOS device. And then as you get to the point which you need, like, you know, the next level, users gone to the next level, you can stream down the information that you need and have it pulled there. And that'll help people get around, I think, some of the issues with the app download size and, and the old bundled resource kind of thing that they could do before. It's kind of an enhancement to all of that. And then the biggest change, the most, the, it's kind of almost like an offhand comment is what it felt like um, in, in the keynote, but it was Bitcode, where they're going to compile our stuff to an intermediate language before putting it into the store, right? And hypothetically, in the future, they could just add all sorts of enhancements to our apps without us having to resubmit. If they say, hey, look, great, we came up with this new compiler um, optimization that will reduce your memory usage in half, great, fantastic, everybody gets it by default. And that's kind of a huge thing because, you know, everything that we've done on iOS and, and Mac for that matter has been just straight up raw native stuff. This turns it into more like Java or .NET where there's a intermediate bytecode type language that's sitting in between, right? Where you're compiling to an intermediary language that can then be further compiled into an actual running bits on metal piece. Somebody was today was saying that that could also lead to the possibility of, of being able to take your same app and run it on a different uh, chip, like maybe they put an ARM chip inside a Mac, for instance, or something to that effect. Is that the case? They didn't say that in the in the session that I saw. No, they didn't say that, but if somebody was hypothesizing that could be a, a benefit of, of going with, having the bitcode versions of our apps. Sure. I mean, it, it certainly gives a lot of flexibility for the future. That's sort of the last stage of compilation in sort of LLVM, right? It turns it to LLVM yep. intermediate representation, and it goes from there down to the binary. So I suppose they're just kind of chopping off that last bit from our end and saying, no, 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 we'll do that, you know, kind of handle the last mile for you. Um, mm -hmm. So it mm -hmm. seems like the only reason to do it is to support other architectures in the future. Like, I can't believe that they're like, oh, we're going so quickly on LLVM technology that you know, we're going to have all of these increases and we don't want to, we don't even want to wait for you to hit the recompile button. We're going to do it. Like, I can't believe that that's the reason. It's got to be because they have other architectures coming, maybe even the long awaited, you know, ARM Max or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The dual mode iPad. Yeah. A couple of other things that I thought were, were pretty interesting. One is I, I think is going to have a huge impact for the, for the better on my productivity are storyboard references. So, so I use pretty large storyboards just because I like the, the way the storyboards work uh, and I like to use segues everywhere, uh, but the compilation times for large storyboards are, are pretty ridiculous. I have a pretty fast machine and it still takes you know a couple of minutes to just to compile the storyboard every time I do a build. Uh, and I used to, back, back before this, you know, the, it got so slow with all the constraints and everything, I used to be able to very quickly you know, tweak something, the storyboard, build and, and see how it worked and all that. Um, and I know there's all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, preview type things now, but, but for my flow, I still like to, to really run the thing. Uh, what this is going to do now is allow you to break your storyboard up into smaller chunks and at the same time preserve the segues in between the chunks. So we'll get away from having to compile the entire storyboard every single time. Uh, you only have to compile the pieces that changed. And with the with the references, the segues are still intact. I think that's going to be really really good for me. Um, another one that I found very interesting uh, was this new Safari web view. Uh, not so much for the you know the obvious reason of you know it's less work to build things, but I think and I'm going to have to play with it and find out. But I think there may be a way in there to to solve this uh, deep linking through the install process. Uh, issue that's been around forever, uh, where you know if you have a an email that directs you to uh, install the app, but yet has information of where it came from, uh, and you'd like to be able to get that attribution information into the app, so you know you know where to go back to, what screen to go back to on the web or whatever, to 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 get uh, uh, some configuration information or whatever it was. Uh, I, I think there's a way to solve that, so I'm, I'm gonna let you guys know how it works out once I get a chance to play with it and see. Maybe I'll um, write something up on that. But I, I think I may have an interesting approach to that. 
They did talk about that at the introducing Safari view controller talk. I, I did sit in on that one. Yeah. Um, and it it gains a whole lot of the pieces that Safari has. So, um, you know, it does it in a way that protects users' credentials. Right. Right. But you get like auto um, password and and you know autofill type stuff for credit card. You get autofill for right, you know web right. pages, all that sort of thing. And it made me wonder. And I hadn't thought about the attribution piece because that's that's kind of interesting. It made me wonder about this classic problem that a lot of apps have had, like uh, Amazon with its Kindle, uh, Dropbox has run afoul of this, and Microsoft refused to bring its OneDrive until they caved in ultimately because they didn't want to give up their 30% subscription fee right to Apple with the, um, you know, the in-app purchase thing. And so they're kind of stuck in this weird, awful user experience where, oh, you wanted to buy a book? Great. Go out of the app. Go into Safari, buy content, come back to the app, reload, and you've got content. This makes me wonder if, well, okay, if you do that at least once, now it becomes easier and kind of seamless to show Safari view controller, okay, well, go in, buy my content because I'm logged into my same user, come back immediately into the app, and everything's just fine. Like, it seems like it will help people get through that. It makes me wonder if it's like a weird loophole for, um, you know, the, the app store subscription model thing. Mm-hmm. Do you think mm-hmm. this is also going to solve the problem of people getting rejected for doing the sending people the Safari, the Safari app to do things like OAuth? Is this the fix for that? That's a good question. It seems like it'd be a real punch in the gut if they were to deny you when they give you all this power to do exactly that, right? Well, and they mentioned that in, in one of the presentations today, right? They talked specifically about using it for OAuth. So is this replacing WK WebView that they came out with last year that was kind of underimplemented? They were, they were very careful to say it wasn't replacing it, it was supplementing it. But they did talk about during the session, though, that it's not necessarily um, one taking over from the other. It depends on your context. So if you, right. you want to have a you know, mini browser experience in your app, I see no reason why you would do anything other than SF, or, or, sorry, uh, Safari View Controller. If you, however, wanted to have something that is still seamlessly or quote unquote seamlessly integrated into your app that isn't like a full browsing experience then you would still use the wk web view it means right. that you got to go through more effort yeah but if you're making some part of your app as you know it's actually a web view so it's kind of like a hybrid ios app instead of a completely native one sure. wk web view is still valid for that for mm-hmm. vast majority of cases just kick it off to safari web view controller and be done with it yeah yeah no, that sounds that sounds really cool. Uh, before um, you go on, Tim, um, yeah. I wanted to mention that uh, the initial call for a Safari View Controller uh, came in December of 2014. I think we might have talked about it on the show, but this is a blog post by a fellow named Brian. Uh, yeah, uh, links in the sh- in the show notes uh, in the Google Doc right now. But I hope you add them to the show notes, please. Um, and he lays out the case for a Safari View Controller. And so this happened last December, and uh, so it's it's actually really cool to see Apple uh, serving up this thing. Um, and I guess uh, he, he filed a radar when he posted his blog, and I'm guessing that radar has been closed. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So I, I guess uh, amongst all the things that you guys have all already mentioned, uh, some of the highlights for me um, were uh, I, I kind of wondered if uh, having worked with the watch kit layout stuff, whether the, that kind of style of layout would come. And it looks like it has in that, you know, you've got sort of a more structured way of, of laying out simple elements. Um, uh, am I right in thinking that? Yeah, the UI and, and NS stack views are uh, ways to just throw sh- into a box and yeah. have it lay out properly, uh, yeah. a la WatchKit. Um, another thing that was really exciting for me, and I tweeted about it yesterday, was XC testing in that now you can, um, rather than, it's, you know, you can actually record your actions and have uh, set up an XC, XC test and, and run with that. Um, so it automatically, or I guess semi-automatically, creates an XC test um, files for you. Uh, so you can do test cases with, without having to code them by hand like a filthy animal. Um, I should say that has been in there, the UI automation. There was an instrument, and it was kind of buried away, but it wrote JavaScript. Unfortunately, it wrote JavaScript as you clicked in your app or right, tapped yeah, in yeah. your iOS simulator. It would write JavaScript to do the uh, code. Um, again, luckily, they've pulled it out of instrument, or maybe killed it in instruments, brought it right into Xcode, and it now writes both Swift and Objective-C, depending on what you want. 
I, I like to see the debugging uh, stuff that's been enhanced in, in Xcode 7. It certainly is uh, helping up quite a bit, especially with the, um, what do you call it, uh, write it down, UI, um, UI testing, uh, user interface testing, and code coverage as well, which is kind of interesting. Um, another area that I'm interested in and, and I thought was really cool was, was the improvements in HealthKit. Um, so they've added some new stuff. They've added in a lot of uh, things about people, you know, people trying to get pregnant and different ways to test that. Having gone through that process myself and, and uh, the chore of trying to get pregnant is sometimes arduous for people. Um, and also the integration of HealthKit for watchOS as well, which is kind of a neat little thing um, going forward. Um, oh, and uh, of course, the, the game gameplay kit, rolling all of the uh, gameplay uh, additions, the, the existing stuff, metal, um, into the gameplay kit. So you basically just do one include and get all the game tools that come with that um, pretty much for free, if you want to call it that. Um, powerful ones too like it, it wasn't just okay so one thing was bringing um metal to the mac uh, the other was adding the um the gameplay kit that will do all sorts of things like ai type things right like having a flocking behavior or following <laughs> all these other really cool things that game developers are going to love and i'm sure it's going to lead to a whole mess ton of uh, tutorials on rayrenderlick.com because you can just see <laughs> you can just see the explosion of articles that need to be written to cover all of that. Well, even the 3D flyover, the flyovers and walkthroughs, and the and the, the model kit handling stuff. Yeah, so that, we're looking forward to that kind of stuff. It'd be interesting to see what the what the team comes up with that on, as far as the tutorials go. We have some really good uh, game game devs that uh, on the team. You know, I also think that UI Stack View is one that was kind of underrated from the uh, Platform State of the Union, but having attended the um, Implementing UI Designs and Interface Builder, this is the first session that really mentions it, and then there are going to be a, a couple of sessions later in the week uh, relating to mysteries of auto layout that are going to go more in depth. Um, but from what they showed, it's really like the next level for auto layout. And in fact, they're, they're almost straight up recommendation was to use UI stack views first to lay out everything that you need and then use raw constraints when necessary. Interesting. I, I always thought it was like, instead of using a static table view, because you just yeah, want a bunch of stuff, too. you would use this. Yep. But Jaime, you're saying this is like actually a layout mechanism, not just I want like rows of stuff. Yeah, so I thought it was like, oh, okay, it's you could do a table view or you know collection view in a in a linear fashion gives you the same kind of fake look and feel that a, a table view would have. This one was definitely a whole lot cooler, and they talked about trying to match things up by having stack views within stack views, which I think gets to to what folks were talking about. And certainly, I had the same feeling of this kind of feels a little bit more Android-y in, in terms of its layout. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was oh, the same thing, and, and yeah. very much uh, QT. Like, if anyone's ever used Qt on, on Unix, oh yeah, in the past, yeah. It's, I mean that's yeah. that's the primary way of doing layouts through this kind of thing. Well, but, and it's common. Mark and I use a lot of that those kind of tricks. Where you know, by when we're trying to maneuver things around for for uh, whether we're running a portrait or landscape or iPhone to iPad, you know, we it marks you know we we build a view and then we pop things into the view and then we manage the where the view places on the screen as opposed to trying to manage all those separate objects, right? So right. Mm -hmm. And they showed some cool stuff in that interface builder session where, you know, they took a couple of elements and said, okay, we're just going to shove them into a stack view, and then we're going to go into the inspector and say, align these on their baseline because they're both text. And then there's also things like, oh, you know, but what if we have to handle multitasking on iPad? Great. Well, the stack view lets you add size class specific changes. So instead of having these things horizontally stacked, we're going to stack them vertically for that specific size class. It was real neat. Oh, and, and, and to make Mark's life easier, they took a whole <laughs> swath of the storyboard, just drag selected a whole chunk of it, hit a button, and refactored it to a, be a reference. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it was just like so easy. It takes you like five seconds to chunk up your enormous storyboard into several different sections. That's awesome. Mm. I can't wait. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we have an opportunity too because we've got Greg down there at AltConf, and can you sort of give us a, the the five second overview on on what's happening at AltConf, Greg? Five seconds. Well, like Aaron said, no, I can't. But <laughs> oh, it's been great. The um, I was at the Twitter uh, 
I was at the Twitter headquarters for the keynote. So we watched it there, maybe about 100 people standing room only. So that was pretty cool. And then for the platform State of the Union, the group, group of us moved down to AltConf. And it was just great. The, that kind of thing is, I was commenting, it was kind of funny how people clap while they're watching the thing on screen. Because, you know, it's not like, it's not like Tim Cook can hear you. But I understand. It's like people who clap at a movie or something like that. So, but it was really great to watch the thing with everybody in the room and the one more thing excitement and then the very, very loud groans after they said Apple music, which I hear they didn't edit out of the keynote, but at the Twitter headquarters, it was, it was pretty loud, even from our group of a hundred people. Wow. Um, so yeah, all comp has been great. It's been, they've got the two tracks running. I think some of the, um, some of the highlights for me was, uh, there was a really, really technical talk by, uh, Peter Steinberger. He's Sty Pete on Twitter, and he gave a really very technical talk on Objective C++. That was maybe a, a really good one that I enjoyed, and talking about how, um, like, even if you're writing Objective C, there are some things in C++, especially with C++11 and C++14 and beyond, that are just really nice, like things like vectors and the initialization, smart pointers, and things like that that are just really cool. And since it's supported, you can have all your Objective-C objects and treat them like in Objective-C++, kind of like C++, and have, for example, a vector of NS strings instead of an NS array of NS strings, and sometimes how the vector syntax is a little bit nicer. So it was a really interesting talk about that. Of course, I kind of moved over to Swift, but I always like, I did start out in C++ a long time ago, so I always liked that kind of thing. Uh, that was pretty cool. And then maybe another good one was um, Joe Chaplinski from the Release Notes podcast. He gave a talk about design is not for designers. And it was kind of an interesting talk about how, I didn't, I didn't actually know, but he is a designer and he kind of learned coding and worked on a couple of apps. Um, I guess I just assumed he was, you know, developer from the very beginning. But he gave an interesting talk about looking at things from design. And it was interesting to hear how us developers will complain about things from the developer side. And again, I never realized he was coming from the design side. So it was kind of what designers are annoyed about and um, sort of how to look at the customers, you know, how to think about what your customers want from the design side rather than from the code side. Anyway, it was a really interesting talk. He's a really good speaker. So that was, um, that was, a, that was a really good talk. And then maybe the third one was uh, Ray Wenderlich himself gave a talk. And the title was Overloading Comparison. And it was incorrectly flagged as an engineering talk in the app. And so I assumed he was going to talk about um, operator overloading for the comparison operators or something like that. But it is actually not a technical talk. It was a talk about how, kind of like imposter syndrome, but instead how like we compare ourselves to other developers. You see on Twitter, you know, this guy just sold his app for a million dollars. This company got bought. This guy reached the top of the charts and got a million downloads and that kind of thing. And sort of how to avoid sort of that bad feeling you get when you try to compare yourself with other people and how to kind of get over that kind of feeling. So it was a non-technical talk. There was two still, there were still two slides of code uh, where he did overload the comparison operator, but um, <laughs> it was not a technical talk and it was more a inspiration style talk about how to kind of keep your mind in the game and how, you know, when you see all these successes on Twitter, you should kind of how to take that as a positive instead of sort of feeling jealous or, you know, worse. So those are probably the highlights just from the, um, from yesterday's talks. But it's been great, a lot of people coming in and out. And uh, oh, I should even say, even people with badges are there. People with WWDC badges I'm spotting there, so I take that as a good sign. That conference is also being streamed on Realm on Realm's site as well, right? Are they doing, are they gonna be showing the videos from those at all, do you know, or? Yeah, I think they, they said the Realm, Realm really is getting their hands in everything, aren't they? They are streaming it, and yeah, they are going to post it after the conference is over. So you can't go and watch the talks yet, unfortunately, but I think sometime after Friday, they're going to have them available um, on their sites. I think your take on what happened at WWDC will depend on what perspective you're coming from. So uh, some of the tech blog stuff I saw was predicated on the keynote itself, which from a user standpoint, and that's where they're coming from, wouldn't really be all that exciting. It's it's really more of the um, Snow Leopard release that we talked about. From the developer side, so if they paid attention to the platform instead of the union, there was no stopping or slowing down. It was just hugely, immensely useful for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, from my perspective, I am, you know, uh, like, like Jaime said, like we're all 
um, you know, sort of going into it with our own perspectives and whatever apps we're developing or plans that we have for apps, you know, we're trying to take all these puzzle pieces that are out there at WWDC, you know, hundreds of new technologies and try to fit them in to to our our world views, if you will. And so, um, as you know, Magpie is is my current project, and I, I'm looking at the uh, the items that I'm seeing laid out before me here and trying to choose which which pieces to put into place, you know? So something like um, the new um, uh, deep app searching, like the spotlight uh, feature in iOS 9 that lets you uh, li- uh, provide a search capability inside of your app. Um, I'll be looking into that some more because I would like people to be able to search their iPhone and get Magpie results in those. Um, CloudKit um, being now with a uh, web services component, really super exciting with a JavaScript uh, library. It's got me thinking about, you know, can I uh, create a web client version of Magpie and charge for it? You know, just like I do for the Mac and iOS versions. Uh, I don't know. So thinking about that. Um, So there's all kinds of different uh, technologies that are being put in place, and uh, we're all going to spend some time uh, continuing to absorb it. And right now we're in the middle of it, and it's really hard to to be definitive, to say the least. Um, Open sourcing Swift, you know, is... Holy crap, you know? <laughs> uh, it's so incredibly exciting. And also the, the, the Linux launch of, of, of Swift so that there will be no question web-based frameworks running on Linux servers that we can target on, uh, on, on the web so that I can write using the same language on the, on the client side and on the server side. Nobody's ever been able to do that before. I guess Java developers, hmm? maybe. Well, there's no Node.js, right? Yeah, but you're going to write a, a, a Node um, client uh, on, on iPhone? No. <laughs> well, it's JavaScript, right? So we'll go around the table like we usually do, and we'll do some picks, and maybe it'll be WWDC-related. Who knows? Um, Aaron, do you have a pick? It is WWDC-related, of course. I of course. believe it was last week I spoke about uh, finding a script that would allow you to, en masse, download all the videos and materials for WWDC. And uh, my link is for such a script. Uh, it's hosted on GitHub, and it's called the WWDC Downloader. Um, don't know why the link isn't uh, live there, but uh, it's fine. It will show up in the show notes. Um, it's by this uh, fellow Oha Chuck. <laughs> I don't know who he is, but uh, he produced this lovely shell script, and all it does is download the videos. Um, you choose whether you want HD or SD, set a destination folder, and let her go. Um, so there you go. And it's uh, you know if you if you want a local copy of all the stuff in one spot for archive purposes, of course, uh, this is the way to go. Cool. I mean, do you have a pick? I do not have a pick other than checking out all those wonderful, delicious sessions from WWDC. <laughs> <laughs> That's my pick, too. All right. Oh, two people vote for that one. Um, I did see that uh, Greg has a pick. I do have a pick. There are these two articles. Well, in the past week after WWDC, both Phil Schiller and Tim Cook have done public interviews. Phil Schiller was interviewed by John Gruber. Tim Cook was interviewed by Christina Warren, I think, and Gruber asked Phil all kinds of things like, why the hell are they still selling 16 gig devices? And I think Tim Cook talked with Christina Warren a lot about diversity, and I think he was pointing out, I think they spoke before the keynote, and he was pointing out how, you know, hey, just watch the keynote and you'll see. And there were women at the keynote, and I think the State of the Union, if I recall correctly. So there are these two interviews, and it's just great to see this, maybe this new open Apple and the top executives giving interviews now. Um, so anyway, the two articles I've linked to are just, uh, I think some a reporter from The Verge was at the John Gruber-Phil Schiller interview. The interview is not actually out. I think it's going to be an episode of the talk show, uh, I think. But anyway, there are these two articles that talk, uh, describe what they talked about and what the answers were like. So we should enjoy this new open Apple while we have it and check out what the top execs have to say for themselves. All right, well, I don't have a pick either, but my pick would be uh, Apple's new diversity as well. I think that uh, it's good to see. I saw somebody tweeted a picture of the lineup after the keynote at the washrooms, and there was, for, for I think, probably the first time in the times that I've ever been to WWC, there was a lineup at the women's washroom, which is a good sign. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> usually, like, it's a really long line for the men. Um, 
and uh, and the other thing too is is as I mentioned before, some of the uh, um, adding in uh, you know reproductive technologies into uh, healthcare is I think is a big a big boon, a good big step forward for Apple. I was having a conversation with somebody on Twitter today, and he sort of said, you know, it's uh, it's about time. And my, my my take on that was, what took them so long? Anyway. Right, so that's it. I guess we'll uh, we'll uh, say our goodbyes. And uh, so, Aaron, if um, people want to find you on the internet, internet, where would they look? On Twitter at Aaron Vay or my now approved product Magpie, but not for sale yet. Uh, mm-hmm. MagpieVideo.com. Cool. And Greg, where can people find you? I'm Greg Heo on Twitter. That's Greg H E O. And Jaime, this uh, episode will probably be out after WWDC, but have you run into many people wearing MTJC shirts? I wouldn't say many, but I did run into one person wearing the official shirt, and I did tweet about that. Um, I also uh, have run into four total people so far that are fans of the show who Woo-hoo. somehow managed to find me. So <laughs> You're very easy to find, free beer I have events, not found you good. yet, but you are very easy to find, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> And Mark, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where uh, would they look? Mark R at smapsoft.com. All right, Mike, once again, I am Tim Mitra in Toronto, Ontario, and I am T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter. And so that's it. We'll uh, sign off and uh, hopefully get this thing out by Saturday after the conference is over, unfortunately. Anyway, so we'll say goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items we talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website, or if you can, please write a review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. You can provide as little as a dollar a month. Any amount helps. However, you're free to do as you please. Thanks again for listening. So what are your general impressions of WWDC since it's just you and me? It's tough to say because it's so overwhelming. You know, there's a lot. I, I guess, you know, the, the overwhelming feeling is that this is an incremental dub-dub instead of a, uh, yeah, like a tick versus talk, <laughs> um, which is great. I mean, last year was so, everything was so new. It's funny, Apple never used the word, you know, we screwed up last year and we're going to just make it better this year. That's a whole bunch of words. They didn't say that, but, you know, like I think that's what this is is, because there's there you know there's a whole lot that how to put it they they haven't done a lot you know like they haven't done a ton of stuff they've they've just basically um they've introduced some incremental features like look at OS 10 and uh 10.11 and and iOS 9 uh there's not a ton of new stuff there um you know and like the the really big change i think for iOS 9 with the multitasking on iPad um you know that stuff by the way you called that i was trying to remember yeah. where, where you followed up where we follow up for that yeah, i can't remember but you know I've, I've several times have complained about the ipad you know and i think apple's been you know been working on this for a long time um i like there was a good chance that they were going to launch it last year along with the size class stuff i think uh but they pulled back on it and um you know because we saw steven certain smith you know, that hacker <laughs> um, who kind of revealed some of that functionality like last year. And so we know that it was there. So I think um, Apple maybe wanted to polish it a bit, but, um, you know, I think most of the work was done. So like that's that to me was a huge headline feature. And um, and uh, so I think overall, I think most of the changes they've made, most of the work they've done has been under the covers, just making things more stable. Were uh, I, I kind of wondered when I was working with Watch whether that kind of layout system would come would be coming to Mac OS X and ten. To, sorry, you got to say Mac OS ten ten dot eleven as well, Tim. Let's hear you say the whole thing. Okay, yeah. El Capitan. All right. All right. So, uh, um, just as a side note, Aaron, I've been listening to the audio book of um, 
becoming Steve Jobs. Yeah, yeah. And and I, you, you have me gritting my teeth because the guy says OS X all the way through the book. Does he really? He does. <gasps> he does. Oh my god, no. that's no. outrageous. Yeah. Anyway, what was I saying? Okay, so I kind of wondered. Greg, are you here? Greg, hello. How's it going? There you are. Hey, Greg in the house. How are things down in the? Uh, did you guys rent a house? We did rent there? a house. Yeah. Cool. As you do. As one That's does here. Yeah. Got to be an Airbnb. It's not exactly, but it is Airbnb like. Okay. On another one of those kinds of sites. I forget what it's are called. Are there really like like a dozen of you guys, and you like sleep on the couches and the floors? There's four of us. Four. Of oh, us four. Here. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I saw you, your the RW team had a get together, and there was like oh. a score of you around the table. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were like all in one house. Twenty-two, something like that. No, we are yeah. not. Not all of us are in the same house. Just, just That's four good. of those people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, that was the plan when 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 the lottery went up. It was like, okay, what are we going to do? And very many of us said, well, let's just get a house and. Rather than going into all different, ho- Did, is Marin in a hotel somewhere? No, Marin is here. Um, oh. He, we only have the house like Sunday to Friday, but um, he was here early. I was here a little early, so we had to kind of find our own accommodation for a few days before, and I guess a few days after. So he was in a hotel for a few days before, but then uh, we're all here now. So so far, it's the three Canucks. All right. <laughs> Yeah. The only ones who dare to show up on time. <laughs> well, he had to rush. We say uh, sorry. For, where is uh, sorry for being early? I took a lift because I'm getting lazy. Oh, it rained here. You know, they did the rain. All, everyone in town did the rain dance, and it actually rained. So I know everyone's all excited, except for me. So I was like, <laughs> I don't know if I want to walk outside in the rain 30 minutes back to the house. So I did not. Well, isn't isn't there? There's a huge drought in California now, isn't there? Oh, exactly. It's or like, like a San Francisco is kind of exempt to that or whatever. Uh, no, it isn't. It hasn't rained here in like a year or two years or something like that. So, uh, Really? Wow. Well, Yeah, okay, we'll just dive into it, I guess, right? That seems like a good idea. Okay. All right. Uh, this is episode 43, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thankfully, Bass hey, is everybody. significant numbers. Go ahead, Tim. Sorry. Here. Okay. That's okay. Hey, everyone. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. No sweat. <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> Go ahead, Tim. It's good. <laughs> All right, hang on. Three, two, one. Mark. Hey, hey, <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, they only have an hour. Aaron. Okay, sorry, yeah, sorry. <clears throat> go, go. They have to go to the big target party. Okay, I'm shutting up now. Um, okay. Um,